Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Alvin Bragg told Jim Jordan to respect states' rights and not interfere with his case against Trump. We have the show of shows today. University of Michigan economics professor Justin Wolfer stops by to talk Fed rate hikes and bank runs, but don't worry, we make it fun. Then we'll talk to the New York Times' Charlie Savage about Trump's latest legal troubles and the media manipulation he created around it. But first, we have the host of The Next Level, The Bulwarks, Tim Miller. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Tim Miller. My second appearance, I'm going for that green jacket. How many appearances do I need to get the the gold jacket? After 45 appearances, we buy you a uh, green jacket. Okay, great. I'm holding you to that. 43 more to go. (laughs) So Trump has neither been arrested nor indicted. I have purple blue balls. I've been waiting for it all week. I've just been waiting for this to pop the champagne. And it sucks. It's it's it is um it's been disappointing. Definitely folks got played by Trump. There were a lot of whispers out there that he was gonna get indicted. I don't think I would have 
you know, bought into this Tuesday arrest that he put on his pretend Twitter that he has, if it wasn't for the fact that like on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, little TV producers were texting me, there were whispers, you know, <laughs> things were happening, <laughs> Trump's gets going to happen. And so, I, and so then when Trump sent out the fake, the bleat, you know, uh, it felt real, but it, it, alas, it hasn't been, though hopefully it's imminent. There, are, We had a great Bulwark article this week. Do you know this, Molly? There are six different investigations active into him right now. Six. It's just one of six. Well, there's Georgia. There's New York. There's Jack Smith. There's the insurrection one. There's one into Truth Social. And there's the classified docs. Right. But I want to, like, real talk with you for a second. Even if we see something from these six... I don't think it hurts him. This has been the conventional wisdom out there. And I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I, I do want to offer a potentially more hopeful take, a more uh, bright eyed okay. take, which is that like the weight of all of this over time compounds. Right. Like Trump was at his weakest right. a few months ago <laughs> because the, the news environment around him was so awful as the election had gone bad. Trump had endorsed these terrible candidates. There was the January 6th committee that was going on, all of these investigations. And that's when in some of these polls, Ron DeSanctis was beating him. Right. And in, in some of these head to head polls at that time. Right. Right. And that was a real thing that the, there are Republican voters that still like Trump that, that are susceptible to to, you know, a series of bad news environments that make them feel like he can't win. Right. If they feel like he can't win, they won't go with them. And so, you know, I think that right now in the short term, sure, it's been a little buoy. People want to stand by their man. They want to come to his defense, you know. But over time, if this one drops and then another one drops and then another one drops, which is what I expect to happen, then I think the weight of all of that and and the fact that like this guy's got like four different arraignments coming up in a nine week period might make you know have not not his core MAGA folks right not the core MAGAs they're right. never going to go but this this wishy washy group the key group in the Republican primary which is people that we like Trump but we're not sure are we ready to go on the ride a third time or do we just want to like give him a gold watch and put him on Mount Rushmore and say you know we're ready to move on right like that person. You know, I think right now uh, it's helping Trump with that person. But I think over time it could go the other way. Let's talk about this because we had Sarah Longwell on this podcast. The best. Uh, the best. And I'm a big fan of hers. And she talks to a lot of people. But she and she talks to a lot of people. She talks to more people than any yeah. of us. Right. Because she is doing these focus groups. She said that, you know, she really feels like DeSantis is less dangerous than Trump. I disagreed with her pretty strongly on that. What is your take on that? Like in this imaginary world where one of them is the president? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your disagreement. I would side with Sarah, and, and the simple answer is this. Trump has now been through this one time. He's been in there four years. He tried the, oh, I'm going to have some adults around, the John Kellys and the and the Mattises. And as, as gross as all those people were and how complicit they were, at some level, it was a bumper around him, right? Like his craziest ideas right. didn't go through. You know, there was Gary Cohn was like not, was literally not putting things on his desk and like pocket vetoing things, which is right, not right, how government should right. work, by the way, but whatever. Okay. This next time around, the types of people that are around him, right? 
right now are absolute lunatics. It's the dregs of the dregs. And and I think he would feel so emboldened to do whatever he wants. I think that he was a little kind of a scared little mouse that first year and he didn't think he was going to win. He couldn't believe he was going to win. So he did plenty of damaging shit and it was plenty horrible. But I, I just think a second Trump term is like literally an extinction level event potentially for the democracy. I don't want to like scare people, but I, that's where I'm no. at. It's like a move to Mexico City level event. And like DeSantis is bad and i and we could go through all the things i don't like about what DeSantis is doing in florida but i do think he would bring the adults in and you know they might be more effective at at, at, at enacting some of these policies that 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 progressives don't like that i don't like in certain cases but i just think that like the worst case scenario is just literally catastrophic the end of america for trump and for DeSantis, it's like this is bad right 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 here's my question for you i actually think that Trump is a sort of known quantity, and DeSantis is really, really hyper-focused and very effective. And in my mind, these two things make him, and he's also, and again, you know, I have many LGBTQ people in my life. Present company included. You included. But he has really made this the yep. target for him in a way we have never I mean, in my lifetime, I have never seen, or at least in the last 20 years, I've never seen someone really hone in to a group of people who, where everything is settled law, same-sex marriage is fucking codified, and the man is is just going after gay people in a way that I don't think in my head I could have even imagined. Yeah, very few people have been as vocally upset about the Don't Say Gay bill, in particular in Florida, as I was. I I, I wrote about it. And you have a child. Yeah, I have a child. Yeah. I, and that's why I wrote about it very early on. I was like, this is crazy. This is insane. This idea that a kindergartner, you know, that my child couldn't come home and, and do a homework assignment, you know, about a family tree that some Karen in Florida, you know, could sue the school over that. I mean, that's yeah. literally the... The rule, the fact that teachers couldn't talk to my kid about her own family. Yeah. That is outrageous. What he's been doing, obviously, targeting the trans folks and drag uh, is also outrageous. As the head-to-head -head with Trump comparison thing, another thing that you've had with DeSantis is I just want to pop this bubble a little bit about his effectiveness. He's been pretty effective, but a lot of these bills are unconstitutional. You know, our mutual friend Robbie Kaplan is working on the Don't Say Gay bill and pushing that out. She's the best. The Stop Woke Act has already been overturned, right? I, a lot of this stuff is just nakedly unconstitutional. And so I, I actually don't know that he's quite he, he's he's a little bit more deft about it and puts a shinier co coat of paint on it than Trump does. Right. But uh, but still, it's still unconstitutional. And, and still, we've had courts, you know, hold, hold that. I think that there are specific areas and, and the LGBT area may be prime among them where DeSantis would likely be, you know, more f effective and more narrowly focused, you know, on, on getting legislation that I don't like passed. Again, I, I would strongly support Joe Biden over Ron DeSantis. I don't think it's even a close call. Of course. Yeah, right? yeah, but, yeah. but head to head against Trump, where it's like, okay, we can fight this piece of legislation, right? We can fight what he wants to do in schools with Ron DeSantis versus like this dude might literally take us out of NATO and end the, you know, Western World Alliance and and threaten the very fabric of our democracy like that's just how i how i assess that but um you know no it's not good either way i, I wish that i wish the other option on the other side was chris sununu or somebody that you know we could right. charitably agree and disagree on various issues right, right, that's right. not the case and both of them are very bad i just assess donald trump to be end times level bad. <laughs> so, there's that right it's quite interesting to me i have to say 
that Sununu, he had an opportunity to differentiate himself and he and he didn't. Yeah. You know, he went right along with Trump. I dislike Chris Christie a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not alone. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> we, we have a we have a, actually a party every year. It's a, at a secret <laughs> location because uh, unfortunately people would be storming the gates to get in. It's right, just so, exactly. such a popular ticket. The Chris Christie hate party. But, right. you know, he at least would be able to go toe to toe with Trump. Right. And all these other guys are just such politicians. And the problem is he just has all this baggage now from everything from Bridgegate, just his never Trump stuff. I just don't think that the MAGA voters are going to listen to him. But that, like that, Sununu is a nice guy. And I, I disagree with him on certain things, agree with him on others. He would certainly be much preferable than the other two. But it's just like, this guy isn't going to be able to go toe to toe on this. It's just not where the party is, right? No. Like the party no. wants MAGA. And, and and they're trying to decide, do we want the OG MAGA who's, who might not be electable anymore and we're a little nervous about, you know, all of his baggage? Or do we want a, a, a MAGA that is pretty close to the OG, but, you know, we might be able to convince ourselves is more electable? That like that is basically what's happening in the Republican primary. And, and I think anyone that doesn't fit in that MAGA world doesn't really have a chance. Yeah, it's amazing, right? We are in a situation here where, like, if a Republican had been brave, there would be an alternative. Well, I go back to the second impeachment. Had 10 more Republicans voted to convict him, we'd be done with him. This is the thing that drives me the most crazy right now, Molly, is all these guys who, who you know just want to be rid of Trump and who are like slowly pushing DeSantis. You got the Chip Roy's of the world and, you know, these other right. people in the Senate who are out there talking about how, you know, I, I just, John Thune, I just trust that the voters won't do this again. Why no. are you trusting them? Why didn't right. you just do your job, John Thune? Had 17 Republicans voted to convict him, he would, it would have been, he would have been barred from running and all of this would be moot and we could have right. it out on stage between DeSantis and Haley and Pompeo and, you know, all those guys can... Right. And you could have a real primary. Yeah. They were cowards. They failed again for the 100 millionth time since 2015 to do their job. And so now, like, they're getting stuck with them again. And so there's a little bit, you know, if the stakes weren't so high, there'd be a little bit of schadenfreude there. <laughs> it's like, it's like, all right, John Thune, you're getting back in, you know, with you're getting in back in the mud ring with the pig again. Good luck. Um, enjoy it. But um, but unfortunately, the stakes are too high for me to kind of fully, fully appreciate the schadenfreude of that. Yeah, no, me too. And I think I would like to keep our democracy. There's a world in which, like, there's some Republican who stands up to him. But I guess not, because that's not where the base is. And... The numbers aren't there. Yeah, I mean, sure. Stand up. Yeah, I think that there are going to be some that push back on him. But are they going to do it well? Right. Look, I got PTSD this week. I don't know about you. When Ron DeSantis went to Pierce and, and was like... Well, you know, I mean, Donald's was, I don't know a whole lot about this world of paying off porn stars. And I would have been a little tougher than him on Fauci. And, you know, these like, kind of limp attacks on, you know, that are like right. not really attacks. Like, you know, Donald's like ripping his face off. You're a groomer. You might be gay. You're assaulting <laughs> people, right? Like, right, like Donald. Right. And, and he's like, well, I'm not so sure. He's doing the normal politician stuff. And, and I was like, we, I, we did this already in 2016. 
I was like, I lived through this. You know, everyone did this. Scott Walker tried this. Jeb tried this. Uh, Marco trying to Ted Cruz, right? It's like this strategy doesn't work, you know, where Trump goes alpha predator and you, you know, kind of do a light jab back at him. Right. And and they're, they're living, we're just living through this all again. Pompeo, Haley, DeSantis are all making the same mistakes that were made in 2016. Like the only path to beating him is to either go, is to either go through him or to or offer a complete, him. yeah, completely an alternative vision and hope he self-destructs. I don't think that right. that would work. That second path won't work, but it might, it could, we don't know, like a year from now. But the person who does that is Liz Cheney. Yeah. She's there. She did it. Right. Well, I mean, but she's these MAGA folks aren't going to vote for Liz Cheney. I mean, she's right, not going exactly. to primary. So yeah, and so right. that I mean, that's like going around and like by supporting Democrats. But I mean, like right. hypothetically, I think you could get in and say, look, I think Donald Trump's kind of pathetic, and I'm just going to focus on here's all the things that I do. I don't know that that I don't know that that would work, but but at least then you know, you're offering something to people, right? right Which is right. like, here, I'm MAGA too. I'm MAGA like you. I don't think that, that what he's going to do is work. It's kind of sad how he's lashing out and I'm just going to focus on this other stuff and I'm going to ignore him. Now, maybe that wouldn't work. Maybe you have to just punch his face out. And that's, I'm sure what your old friend Rick Wilson would say. But either of those are at least pl- viable options. Getting in and like, you know, doing this like pillow fight with him while he's right. like gnawing at your uh, jugular <laughs> is not like, we know that doesn't work. Right, right, right. And yet they're all doing it again. It is interesting. The thing with DeSantis that I never understand is like, if you could have Trump, why would you have the guy who's like lesser Trump? I think the hope is, Again, when you think about the the median Republican um, voter, right? Like the per the so there's some people, you know. Let's take out the people who are like Liz Cheney curious, and take out the people who are storming the Capitol for Trump, right? right. Like put, okay. you know, throw 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 all those folks out. What percentage of voters are those that we're talking about? You've got maybe. 10% at best, probably a little less than that, that are never, you know, that are ant- totally off the train of Trump. Then you've got probably 25% that are Trump always, Trump forever, right? And and we can all, we could quibble. It might be 15 on one side, 20, 30 on the other, right? But th- let's just, let's just say the big middle, 60%, 50% of the party is people that like Trump, but haven't 100% decided that they're Trump forever, okay. right? And like that is the center of the party right now. They might just decide, I like Trump. I thought he was good, but man, I don't know. We, I'm really sick of losing to Democrats. And, uh, you know, he's got all this other ba- all this other stuff happening that I'm not so sure about in the tweets. And it was fun for a little while, but I might be ready to change the channel, right? Like, but again, I really do like him and I don't like it when the libs are mean to him, right? Like that person is the key person in determining who's going to be the Republican nominee. And so the hope was that DeSantis could win that person person over by being Trump light. But like in practice, you can see why that doesn't work because Trump goes straight for your head. Like Trump's going to push him down to the 10. You know, he's like, oh, you want to try to win these people who like me? Okay, well, I'm going to make them hate you then. Okay? Right, right, and so like that might work like in a vacuum, right? If you had an academic study and, and, you know, ran the primary out in a, you know, in imaginary land that the DeSantis strategy might work. But in real land, where Trump is is crushing you, it's a lot harder to pull off. It's prediction time. Oh, God. And by the way, if you're wrong, you don't get the blue coat or the green coat. Okay. The green jacket. I have to be, I have to be right in every you prediction right on, all 45, every prediction. on all 45 yeah, podcasts exactly. to get the jacket? Okay. Yeah, yeah. High bar. <laughs> it's a very high bar. <laughs> 
what case goes first? Yeah, to me, it seems like Bragg is is imminent. I know the imminent word is like an eye roll now on MSNBC right. at this point. <laughs> All signs point to that. I, I think the only thing that would prevent Bragg from being first is if he steps off the ledge and just, you know, or the grand jury, you know, something happens in the final days with the grand jury. So I think Bragg is the most likely. And I, to me, it seems like Jack Smith, it seems like the federal stuff is moving very fast. And, and that I think that the federal investigation... Um, they're conscious of the timeline, right? Like the debates start in August, right? These guys don't want to be doing indictments in August, right? Like after well, the campaign has really be. started, yes, right? Yeah. But I mean, they themselves, I think, feel like, you know, there's some imaginary date in their minds. Maybe it's the first debate. Maybe it's after, you know, a certain number of people announce or whatever, where it's like the campaign is on right now. Like we can't in- interfere. So I think that the federal stuff would happen next. Uh, and then I-, I don't have as much insight into what's happening in Georgia but that seems very live too. There's, there's a lot that there. There's a lot of live grenades out there. So anyway, that's my half prediction is that Bragg is going to happen first, just not as quickly as we thought. Tim Miller, thank you. Thank you, MJF. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Justin Wolfers is a professor at the University of Michigan and the host of the podcast, Think Like an Economist. Welcome to Fast Politics, Justin. And Fast Economics, Molly. (laughs) So I can't decide whether to start with the rate hike or the bank runs. So I'm going to let you choose. Yes. Let's get bank runs. Just explain a little bit about what happened with these bank runs and what they mean. Yeah. So if anyone has seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. What happens is someone in town thinks that the bank may not have enough money in its vault. So then they run to the bank. And then other people along the way also think, oh, no, there might not be enough money in the vault. So they also run. And so now there are a whole lot of people inside the bank trying to withdraw their money. And there's more people than there is money in the vault. And so a bank run is the self-fulfilling prophecy when everyone fears there won't be money in the vault. So they all want to get to the bank and withdraw their money before someone else takes the last dollar. And then you end up with no money in the vault. That was what happened in A Wonderful Life. That's what happened throughout the Great Depression. And that is what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. There's an interesting caveat, which is wealthy venture capitalists were involved in this bank run. So a a particularly unsympathetic (laughs) bunch of characters. The way a bank run goes down is actually kind of everyone's a little selfish, right? You're like, I hear the bank's in trouble. You could call the manager and offer your support. Or you could (laughs) race there to beat your neighbor. And if you really want to think of who's most likely to exhibit that sort of behavior, Peter Thiel's pretty high on my list. Supposedly, though, and I want to I wanna ask you about this, supposedly he did not. He is saying, at least he said to some journalists, that he had $50 million in that bank and he did not pull his money out. That said, Founders Fund, which is a fund that he has some affiliation with, um, did pull its money out. And Peter Thiel has a, a long history of always telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> Well, my favorite is David Sachs, who can you, who's a venture capital. I mean, I don't, I can't tell. Can we say like, this is just like a gallery of pricks. Can we say pricks? (laughs) David Sachs is a uh, entrepreneur who is a middle-aged guy who went to Stanford and blocked me on Twitter. He was another entrepreneur involved in this. But, you know, what I think is pretty interesting about all of these libertarians is that the minute Silicon Valley Bank was in trouble, they went crying, not to their own bootstraps, but to the federal government. Because of a much broader and much harder truth, which is that even if you're the most fervent believer in market forces, well-run markets require regulation. And nowhere is that more clearly the case than with thinking about the banks, the banking system. Banks have what economists call multiple equilibria. And I'm going to explain that, Molly, before you never invite me back. (laughs) Yes, go. Basically, most days of the week, probably, you know, January 23rd last year, you woke up and you thought to yourself, finance is so boring, I promise not to think about it all day. (laughs) And that's an equilibrium. Because if everyone does that, we'll just leave our money in the bank and the next day is boring. What happened at the end of last week 
was a bunch of people woke up and they said, I'm worried there may not be enough money in the vault. And it may not even be I'm worried. It could be, Molly, that I'm worried that you're worried. Now, if I'm worried that you're worried there's not enough money in the vault, I'm worried you're going to go withdraw your money and then there'll be no money in the vault. And so what I do is I run, and that's the other equilibrium, the other outcome. And so the thing is banks can flip from the good, boring state to the, oh, my God, I've got to beat you there state just overnight. Click your fingers, just like that. It turns out, remarkable fact here, economics has solved the problem of bank runs. Solved it. Totally solved it. So if you look at the number of bank runs that occurred in the US, they're incredibly common all the way through the 1800s, the 1900s, up until the Great Depression, where an enormous number of bank runs destroyed the financial system. And in the wake of the Great Depression, we instituted what's called deposit insurance. Deposit insurance says, well, if your, mon- if your bank goes bust, we will pay you back. We'll give you the money. And so what that means, Molly, is let's go back to January 23rd. Remember, that was the morning you woke up and you thought, finance is so boring, I promise not to think about it. <laughs> if you yeah. have less than $250,000, every day is that boring. Right. And if you think the day is boring, then I don't need to run to the bank to withdraw my money before you do because I know that you think it's boring. So deposit insurance solved the problem. You might say, well, but Justin, there was a bank run. The thing about Silicon Valley Bank is all of its depositors, well, not all, a huge number of, of its depositors were VC and startups. The thing about those folks is they have gobs of money, heaps of it, piles of it. You're only insured up to $250,000. So what that meant was all the folks you mentioned before, they're effectively uninsured. And so what that meant is that bank and that bank alone effectively was outside the framework that has prevented bank runs from being a major feature of American life ever since the Great Depression. So, but what happened was that the Biden administration actually did what the Silicon Valley people wanted them to do, which was to guarantee over 250000 Yeah. So let's go back to David Sachs and his brethren. So when a bank run happens, one bank that took a lot of bets, and maybe you should have known better than to put your money there if you're a super smart Silicon Valley millionaire, when one bank goes south, you know, like that's bad for you. And I just want to be clear about the stakes here, by the way, which is there's probably enough value in the organization that David Sachs was going to get 90 cents out of every dollar that he deposited. So this was not like losing all your money anyway. It was like losing a tenth of all your money. No. By Monday morning, you would have got half of it. And within a few weeks, you would have got, I'm guessing, 90% or even 100% of your money back. Those are educated guesses. So when your bank's going south, you don't want anyone else to know about it because that will actually cause it to go south. As soon as your banks collapse, though, what you want to do is create fear elsewhere, which is what David Sachs did. These guys, libertarian heroes, went to Twitter and started screaming, the banking system's collapsing, Washington has to do something now. And that's because it wanted you and I to believe that our bank might collapse. And in fact, if they succeeded, that would have been enough for my bank to collapse if enough people were fearful, they would have withdrawn their money, we would have had another old-fashioned bank run. And at that point, that's called contagion, and the federal government has to stop, do something to stop this spreading to a million other banks. So that's why these guys, incredible misbehavior, are screaming the whole system's going down, despite the fact that they, they knew they were going to get at least 90% of their money back. And it's because they wanted to create the macroeconomic conditions that would give the government no choice but to rescue them. And it created not just the economic conditions, but also the political conditions. 
And so the government effectively said, hey, you know what? Remember that part where we said everyone's insured for the first $250,000? Just kidding. Everyone's insured for everything. (laughs) Which would be like totally awesome if it applied to the rest of our lives. Well, it's good to see libertarians getting away with it because, I mean, you know, good for them. Now, (laughs) these people are not going to see any. It's just heartwarming. I mean, none of what they did was illegal. No one is going to go to jail for this. This is just another day of fun in manipulating markets, right? Yeah, but let's not minimize that, Molly. Let's call bad behavior bad behavior. Let's call trying to cause economic destruction terrible. Let's call trying to drag down the financial system in order to get your bailout deplorable. May not be illegal. Yeah, but it is morally reprehensible, though I'm not sure... Morally reprehensible is something that these guys consider to be a bad thing. We lost like two of these regional banks. I mean, do you think the rest of the banks are safe? Number one, it seems like his time has passed. We're getting a sense that they are. Let's pause there. Yes. And the reason is Silicon Valley Bank was unusual in two respects. One, it was essentially uninsured because it had all rich customers. Two, what management did is they went off to the casino and, and laid some big bets and Banking 101 is you don't do that. (laughs) And the other thing I want to ask you is it seems to me like with the railroads that this would be a case where regulation would have prevented, certainly, you know, regulation would have prevented this. I mean, will there be regulation and do you believe that? So there are a variety of different responses, all of which I believe. So a different answer, I don't know how you feel about this is maybe we should have insured all deposits to start with. Because if everyone's deposits, even billionaires, were insured, then none of them have to, will start a bank run because they all know that their money will be there whether they go and withdraw it or not. So that's one possibility. It's a form of regulation. Another answer is maybe we should be pretty comfortable with where we're at, which is we insure most deposits, just not the super rich. But we shouldn't allow banks to only cater to those who are uninsured, as Silicon Valley Bank did. Another answer is what Silicon Valley Bank did was the double whammy of being uninsured and then taking the money to the casino. Why was it allowed to take it to the casino? And I should be clear to your listeners, what it actually did was bought long-term government bonds, which sounds like it's safe, government bonds, that sounds safe, but long-term government bonds is effectively betting that interest rates will be low forever. And so it took a bet. I call that going to the casino. So It used to be that banks of Silicon Valley Bank's size were subject to closer supervision by the authorities to make sure they don't go to the casino. And then in 2018, Silicon Valley Bank and other small and regional banks went to Washington, looked the authorities in the eye and said, we are not systemically important. You don't need to worry about us. We shouldn't be regulated like this. Just, you know, if we screw up, let us fail and it won't have a big problem. They succeeded, (laughs) and so the regulations were weakened that helped allow them to go to the casino. And then, of course, they go to the casino, they lose all their money, and then they say, just kidding, federal government, we're really important. If you don't save us, you'll bring the economy down. And they ended up getting bailed out. Just amazing stuff. So talk to me about the rate hikes. Inflation has not gone away, or at least the anxiety. Inflation has not gone away. So if you're used to thinking about inflation over recent months as being, say, 6 or 7 or 8%, I've got really good news for you. It's probably closer to 4%, 4 point something. 
it may be coming down, but it may not be because the recent news hasn't been as exciting or positive as we might have hoped. And so that then means the Fed's got to do something to bring down inflation. And what it normally does is it raises interest rates. And before this financial mess, it had suggested it might even raise interest rates by half a percent today. And today it decided to go for the simple no surprises approach and raised interest rates by about a quarter of a percent. And it's very hard to fault its logic here. I think there are some who are going to be concerned that, wow, maybe they shouldn't have raised interest rates at all given the distress in the banking system. But what you heard from Chairman Powell was actually a fair bit of confidence that, you know what, those guys at Silicon Valley Bank are a bunch of wackadoodles and we don't think other banks look like that. And we don't think that they're that important to the broader economy. And in any case, the way we fix those problems is what we do is we lend money to banks who don't have enough in the vault. So we have a solution. So we use lending money to banks, providing liquidity as the tool for solving financial distress. And then we go back to using good old-fashioned interest rates to clobber inflation. And that seems to be what Powell is trying to do. Like if you were Powell, would you do this? If I were Powell, there'd be a lot more listeners to your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> they may not be the listeners you want. <laughs> I think it's a very sensible, very defensible, straight down the middle of the line, straight down the middle of the road view. I think if one were looking for a liberal critique, it's the one that Elizabeth Warren has correctly raised, which is when we raise interest rates to reduce inflation, what we're doing is we are saying we are going to throw some people out of work, sacrifice them on the altar of lower inflation. And once you start to think about those people, you start to think, well, maybe we should really be sure we need to do it. And so that would be like, I really don't want to believe inflation is this stubborn, but I'm really going to wait until they learn that rather than accidentally overdoing it. That would be, the, the I think, the, the liberal critique. And I think it's quite serious. The conservative critique would be, if you sit back and let inflation take hold, everyone's just going to get used to it. And then inflation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where I ask for higher wages because my cost of living rose. And then my employer raises its prices because its wage bill rose. And fortunately, we're not in that position. And so I do think that, you know, there are a range of arguments, but it's, it's a pretty defensible view. Now, here we are in this kind of period where there's a lot of anxiety that we're headed towards a recession, but really no one knows, right? No one ever knows. <laughs> Economists are fantastic at predicting recessions approximately two to three months after they begin. What are the indicators you're looking at and what are they telling you? So I'm an optimist. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not promising your listeners there'll be no recession. In fact, I think the simplest way of thinking about it is over the past century, there's been 14 recessions. So that says in any given year, there's a one in seven chance of a recession. And then, so I reckon, why not think about that this year? Now, a lot of people are a lot more pessimistic than I am. They're like, interest rates are high, so therefore we might think it's more likely. Maybe, but, you know, they're not that high. And I use a very simple rule of thumb. The very, the single best indicator for the future path of the economy is how's it going now? It tends to repeat itself. And things are pretty good right now. Unemployment is at a 50-year low. May have been a tick higher this month. The rate of job growth over recent months has been at a level that in normal times would be called a boom, yet for some reason the headlines have been recession. So I think there is an enormous disjunction between the extraordinary pessimism I hear out there and the actual hard economic numbers, which so far, I keep being amazed, but so far just keep looking really, really good. And let's just keep hoping it continues. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, what else are, what are the other choices? What are the things that you're like a little bit worried about in your head? The Fed's put out its latest forecast today, 
And one reason I pay a lot of attention to that is the Fed as an institution is literally hundreds of PhD economists who spend their whole day just noodling over numbers. And as far as we can tell, they're the single best predictor of the state of the future of the economy. The Fed really does see the economy slowing over the next year. Now, I want to be clear, they're also not infallible. So that gives me real concern. I worry about the rest of the world, what's going, you know, I think there are a lot of things that could go wrong there. I think the biggest, dumbest, stupidest thing that could happen is that the federal government will decide to default on the debt as a result of debt ceiling brinksmanship within Congress. And I think this is a wildly dysfunctional Congress and simply refusing to pay your bills is just punching the American economy in the face. And given that the right wing of the Republican Party already like punching Kevin McCarthy in the face, I think they like regular Americans even less. Um, so I worry a lot about that. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. A great pleasure, mate. Charlie Savage is a Washington correspondent at The New York Times. Welcome to Fast Politics, Charlie. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to have you. So super interesting moment in American media. Donald Trump told us he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. It is now Thursday and nothing. Not true. We, of course, something, which is that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, is continuing to work with a grand jury in New York and seems to be close to a final decision to seek an indictment. But Trump obviously had no actual knowledge that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday or this would be done on Tuesday, but was throwing out a specific day as sort of a call to arms to his supporters, which has now come and gone. That doesn't mean nothing is happening, though. It just means that Tuesday was made up. So explain to us a little bit, because what, so I wanted you to talk about this piece that you just did, possible Trump indictment puts attention on prosecutorial discretion, because we're in a situation where there are so many possible cases for this defendant that the question we've hit a moment of like who goes first right there is a sequencing issue not that anyone has the authority to tell one prosecutor versus another in new york or georgia or washington dc you have to wait for this unrelated other matter to go first they're all kind of independent agents here which is a little bit chaotic but you have seen a lot of commentary of people who are critical of Trump and do think that he committed various crimes and should be held accountable for that. So people of that ilk, nevertheless, wringing their hands over the prospect that this case will go first. Is this the first case to break that seal? And for the first time in American history, an ex-president is being charged with a crime. This ex-president in particular is being charged with a crime. When the matter at hand, apparently, bookkeeping fraud to cover up a campaign era payment to a porn star is obviously so much less significant than the events surrounding January 6th and the attempts to overturn the election or even holding on to classified documents and uh, obstructing the government's efforts to retrieve them, the other matters at hand. Not just because the actions seem to be tawdry as they are less important than those other things, but also because there is a sense that the legal theory that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, is considering may itself be novel in some way. And the problem is we don't really know what his theory of the case is. 
And there's been a lot of speculation, but that speculation may be wrong. And so, but the issue is that we're pretty confident that his primary charge is bookkeeping fraud for writing in Trump organization records that repayments to Michael Cohen for this payoff to Stormy Daniels were for a legal retainer that didn't exist, as opposed to writing down what they were actually for, which is reimbursing him for this hush money payment during the election. I mean, is that a tax fraud issue or is that a campaign fraud issue? Well, that's the issue. So bookkeeping fraud under state law is normally, if it's just by itself, it's a crime, but it's not a big crime. It's a misdemeanor. Right. You know, two-year statute of limitations. You're not going to you're not going to go after a president on a misdemeanor that's old. But it becomes a right. felony. The fraud was for the purpose of committing or covering up a second crime. So that's quite that's the question. What is the second crime that Bragg is thinking about? There's been chatter that it may be a campaign finance violation. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty in federal court to violating campaign finance law by making this payment and not disclosing it. But that's a federal charge. Presidential campaigns are regulated by federal law, so it raises the question of whether a state prosecutor who doesn't have jurisdiction right. over federal law can invoke that. Is there some way of making it a state campaign law? And so people are nervous about doing something that hadn't been done before. It may also be the case that everyone is wrong. And Bragg has some other set of evidence that's not public that perhaps Trump intended to, For I'm just making this up now, right? Perhaps he right, has evidence right. that Trump intended to deduct those payments to Cohen right. on his state <laughs> to taxes. To take a tax write-off yes. on his payment to a sexual partner. Yeah. By the way, I would not put it past him, but I want to ask you, and I want to go back to something we were talking about a minute ago, which is you said that there is sort of confidence that Bragg is still meeting about this indictment. Can you explain to me where that comes from? Well, the DA's office is locked down, and but the people who are called before the grand jury to testify are allowed to talk about what they were asked. Lawyers for people who are being given a chance to try to head off an indictment or the defendant, potential defendant himself are free to talk about it. And so in these investigations, even without there necessarily being inappropriate leaks from a prosecutor's office, especially if it's high profile enough, the hive mind of the press corps is generally able to suss out puzzle pieces that give us an idea of what's going on and whether the grand jury is being used for this purpose on this day or is being asked to ask about some unrelated case. It looks like this is not going to be resolved this week. And so it continues. And in the meantime, then people, there's the void is filled by this commentary of, is this the case to go first? Is this the weakest case? Relative to the others, at least, is Bragg it's going to be vulnerable here to attacks from Trump and his world, that he's doing something that's never been done before selectively for political reasons. And so that that sussing into those issues of prosecutorial discretion, what is selective prosecution, what would Trump have to show if he did get charged and brought that was the purpose of that piece you brought up. I guess that group is meeting today, but not about this. Can you explain that? Well, a grand jury is not convened generally for one particular investigation. A grand jury right, may have right, right, right. several unrelated matters. And so there are reports out of New York that the grand jury is not focused on this case today, in which case, uh, assuming that's correct, they're, you know, they're not going to make a 
decision today. Of course, that, you know, maybe this is wrong and by 3 p.m. the world looks very different. But there's a whole lot of like looking at this through a glass darkly for all of us on the outside. Right. There's this case, there's a possible DOJ case, right? We don't really know if that where that is, right? There's two possible federal cases, both of which are being handled by the special counsel, Jack Smith. One about Trump's attempts to overturn the election leading up to encompassing the events of January 6th, and the other about the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and obstructing the efforts to return, get them back. And then there's Georgia. Yes. And then the local prosecutor in Atlanta, Fulton County in Georgia, has a January 6th investigation of her own going focused on Trump's attempts to overturn Biden's narrow win in Georgia, specifically including the famous taped and leaked phone call to the Secretary of State, in which Trump asked him to, quote, find the right. 10,000 or so votes he needed to flip the outcome and efforts to get Trump supporters to declare themselves to be electoral voters, electoral college voters, which would then set up Mike Pence to not certify the election. Isn't there another Georgia case? There's another phone call. I'm sorry. There's a phone call that we didn't really know about. There are multiple phone calls in Georgia, multiple efforts to get people in to pressure Georgia officials to find a way to flip the outcome of that election. And so the Fannie Willis, the DA down there, is looking at both that and election crimes related to that and the fake electors piece. And she has indicated that she's also looking at a racketeering charge, which is an interesting twist. Racketeering charges were written to deal with criminal organizations like the mafia and gangs, where you had groups of people working together, committing a series of crimes, but all with a common purpose. And so she seems to be toying with the notion that Trump and his associates were together committing various crimes, all with the unified purpose of trying to flip that election. And that potentially could violate RICO, the racketeering law. Until she puts together a grand jury, there will be no charges out of Georgia and there is no grand jury yet. Uh, So... Yes, people may have heard that there was a grand jury, and famously the right, chairwoman of that went on this somewhat crazy publicity tour, <laughs> giving interviews. <laughs> that was and really bits, bad. Yeah, not necessarily coming off as the most serious-looking person. Yeah, uh, but that was a special grand jury that was merely—it's a thing that doesn't exist in federal law. It was merely to gather evidence, that is, to be the body that oversees people testifying and turning over documents over a longer term investigation. It lacks the authority to decide whether to actually bring charge. It only make recommendations. So Fannie Willis still needs to decide whether she wants to ask a regular grand jury, does this pile of testimony and documents add up to chargeable offenses? And as far as we know, she hasn't decided whether or not she's going to do that at this point. So there definitely are steps in the Georgia case that would need to happen before anything happened. Well, and in the New York case and in the right. D.C. cases, no, Trump has not been charged. No grand jury has voted right. to indict him anywhere. But all kinds of things are boiling. Do you think that Trump and again, I, I know how annoying it is to come on this podcast and for me to ask opinion questions because you're a straight journalist, but I'm going to ask you an opinion question, but at least it's not partisan. Since Saturday, we have sort of lived this news cycle that was a little bit of Trump's making, right? Even if there were. Absolutely. Do you think Trump sort of won that news cycle? I mean, well, he certainly focused attention on this and he put his rival, Ron DeSantis, on the hot seat and sort of forced him to 
show his hand a little bit about whether he was going to be on Trump's side or let Trump stew here. In that sense, he at least was controlling the narrative. He decided this is what we were all going to talk about, and we did. An element of this, which is interesting, though, is that part of his commentary since Saturday morning has been a very clear call to arms, telling them to protest. Now is the time. Protest, protest, protest. Notably, not using the word peacefully, as he did once in his you know, notorious January 6th speech. And so then when people later accused him of incitement, his supporters could say, no, he said peacefully, you know, in the middle of all that other stuff. He finally did, by the way, say peacefully this morning in a truth social post that used the word very insidiously. Right. He didn't say go protest peacefully. He said, you know, I'm innocent. Bragg's out of control. He's an animal. They're destroying our country. And they tell us to be peaceful, you know, right? <laughs> right. Kind of the opposite of urging people to be peaceful. Right. So, but what I was getting at is the protests that he called for have not seen much of a response. There's been a, a few sort of half-hearted right. gatherings of small numbers of people that are generally outnumbered by the number of media who showed up to see what was going to happen. And so maybe some of that is just no one really knows you know, when the day is, if he's actually in the courthouse, maybe, you know, being fingerprinted, maybe people will spontaneously flow there. But it's raising the prospect that January 6th was a, a one-off and that his supporters aren't right. willing to do that again with all kinds of, you know, people rotting in jail and right. having to pay for their own bills. And also this, you know, that was about, obviously it was a lie, but the election was stolen. Your vote was taken away from you. And maybe that's more right. galvanizing than hey, they're trying to charge me with a crime over this payoff to a porn star, which lacks that sort of your vote was to <laughs> element. But in any case, it, we'll see, what, is he still able to create chaos or not? You know, and to, and to the extent right. he may have revealed himself to not be able to reassemble, well, I don't want to predict that he hasn't been able to do right, that. Right. But, but you know, if he isn't able to reassemble a mob, then maybe people in his own party and such may reconsider how deferential they want to be to him. Yeah. I mean, that is a certainly very interesting situation where you have members of the Republican Party more willing to defend him than anyone else. I mean, you have to wonder, like we had thought for such a long time that it was the base. But what if it's the party itself that has Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> right. I mean, you don't have to answer that because yeah, I know I, you're I like a real reporter. I, won't, <laughs> I, will, I will neither. But so I want to ask you what what else are you watching for? Again, we're not going to predict, you know, we're taping this on whatever day this is. It will come out on Friday. We're not going to try to predict what's going to happen. But what else are you watching for in the macro, micro level, whatever? Just tell me what you're looking at. Right. So I'll say two things. One is the piece that you mentioned earlier about prosecutorial discretion may get at something that becomes important if Trump is charged and then his lawyers file a motion to dismiss on the basis of prosecutorial misconduct or selective prosecution, which certainly his PR statements are pointing towards. You know, this was politically motivated and no one, a weak case, no one else would be charged with this. Therefore, it's improper. As I understand it from having read the cases now and talked to a number of professors who've written in this space, the fact that there's never been a case quite like this before may get Trump some traction in the court of public opinion and trying to portray right. it this way. He will have tremendous difficulty in an actual court of you know, proving selective prosecution because what he would need to show 
is that other people have in New York has to be the same prosecutor's office. Can't just be, you know, someone in North Carolina or whatever. Other people in New York have done this same thing, the same action. And the prosecutor chose not to charge them. And those other people had invoked their First Amendment rights to have different, you know, expressed different political views than Trump, than me, right? Because it has to be you, you, an exercise of a constitutional right or some disfavored category of like religion or race, like people are being treated differently based on one of these things. And so it's just not clear. There are any other examples of New Yorkers falsifying business records to cover up campaign era payoffs to people that are embarrassing, even if they're otherwise lawful. And so if he can't point to other examples where the Manhattan DA could have charged someone with this and didn't, he will not succeed in a selective prosecution case. So that was interesting. Very, very difficult. And apparently it's been like a century since even anyone has succeeded in the selective prosecution um, claim, even though defendants raise it all the time. So that's one. The other thing that's interesting that's going on right now is House Republicans, Jim Jordan et al., Comer, have been sort of galvanized into action to try to help Trump here and have been demanding information, demanding testimony, demanding documents from Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, who this morning's had his lawyer send them back a letter saying, buzz off, this federalism, you have no legitimate purpose in doing this. Even the federal DOJ does not tell you about open investigations. We're a state court as well, sovereign state of New York, 10th Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, an array of defenses. And it appears to me that it is likely that this is just the beginning and that there will be similar attempts by the House GOP to get into the Georgia case, maybe the Jack and the Jack Smith two cases. We may be ending up with, can they get something to the floor for contempt if these prosecutors tell them to go away? Will we be back in court as we were with the politics flipped 180 degrees in the last two years of the Trump administration when the Democratic-controlled House kept subpoenaing entities ranging from Trump's former lawyer Don McGahn, White House counsel Don McGahn, to Mazars, his financial accounting firm, and sort of Trump world people were arguing these subpoenas are invalid. These go beyond Congress's legitimate legislative authority. This is just, you know, political fishing expeditions and therefore judge you should quash the subpoena. You know, it used to be exceedingly rare for Congress to be in court pursuing litigation over trying to enforce subpoenas. And that became kind of commonplace in the last two years of Trump as he stonewalled the Democratic House. And I think that same set of issues is going to be all over the place again now. And, and we're starting to see the leading edge of that, except now it'll be Republican House trying to get its subpoenas enforced. Yeah. Irony. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. I really appreciate you. Thanks, Charlie. My pleasure. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jungfast. Jesse Cannon. It's always fun when the petty no, little fuck. None of this is fun. Go on. <laughs> yes. Fun. Ironic fun. I smile when Matt Gates attacks Ron DeSantis to defend his boy Donald Trump. 
that makes me smile, but I'm maybe a little deranged. So the whole idea here that Gates and Co. have decided is that somehow DeSantis could protect Trump by stopping extradition from the state of Florida. Again, Trump has yet to be charged with anything. Like these people in a rush to defend the guy who hasn't been charged with anything, they're making up a lot of stuff. But the new thing is that Matt Gates wants DeSantis to stop Trump from getting extradited, which isn't happening. So there's nothing braver than defending someone for something that you don't understand at all. <laughs> Congratulations, Matt Gates. I think you're just arguing for this because you really want to build that moat. Yes, I want to build the moat. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.